Today, we are examining the perfect fit. When creator and genre and style subject matter combine to just click on all cylinders and give us that once in a lifetime unforgettable experience, whether it's a movie, a TV show, or a comic book, we've all been there. We've all experienced when that, that perfect fit occurs, when you cannot believe how well this creator and this subject matter, this title worked and it blew us away and it inspired us. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't always come together that easily. Sometimes the creator and the genre don't fit. It's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a mishmash. It's a mix-up. Did they do it on purpose? Do they know? When creators understand how to maximize their unique gifts with the perfect subject matter, we all win in the end. We are the beneficiaries. We look at all of the ingredients that go into making the perfect fit on a brand new episode of Rob Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. These are my Rob Observations that I am offering you each and every episode. My career has lasted 37 years in comic books um, so far. I hope it lasts another 37. I hope that I am still doing this many, many decades from now, I have written and produced and created and illustrated uh, multitudes of comic book titles. Some you may have heard of Deadpool. I created Deadpool. I created Cable. I created Domino. That They are the nucleus of what would go on to be the number two best-selling comic book of all time. Yes, that record still stands. It is X-Force. X-Force released in the summer of 1991. The little engine that could, featuring a bunch of characters that came out of nowhere, out of a young 20-something hyperactive imagination. That imagination was mine. I have gone on to do best-selling runs on Captain America, The Avengers. I helped launch. I was a founding partner of Image Comics, the number three comic book company in all the land. For all these 30 years, Image Comics has wedged itself so nicely into that uh, number three comic book company uh, slot. And I am so thrilled that you guys have picked up so many of the comic books that I have done over the years with Image Comics, whether it was Youngblood, Brigade, Bloodstrike, Profit, uh, Supreme Glory, Newman, all of them. I loved doing each and every one of them. And I have loved doing this podcast with you guys for the last few years. We are powering through. We are uh, grabbing more listeners each and every episode. I am so thrilled. I do not say it enough. I do not express nearly enough that I am so grateful that you are here and listening to me and that we get to talk and share. And again, I am just so um, thankful that this audience exists and that we can have this dynamic Observations is my, you know, chronicle, my comic book chronicle of my existence with comic books. It began when I was seven years old, pulling comic books off the spinner rack. It has been a wonderful journey. I found my career in comics. That passion translated into an amazing career in high school for my, you know, curriculum, my, my projects. Each and every semester, I was able to coerce my teacher into allowing my curriculum my my you know workload to be sample pages drawing comic books storytelling sequential art that would launch me into 
the comic book field. And I was fortunate enough, less than one year after graduating high school, I was able to uh, get hired in comic books. And it was very exciting. And, and, and I have never looked back. I have been able to express my passion for comic books over thousands and thousands of pages. And I am so glad that, that, that comic book fans accepted me just in the same way that you are accepting me on this podcast each and every week, twice a week. We, we show up on, on Tuesdays and Fridays, and we are so thankful, so thankful that you are there on the other side of this mic. Today, we are jumping straight into our, our very just joyful topic of the perfect fit, the perfect fit. It's something that happens with directors on movies, in, in, in nowadays in streaming and television. It happens in comic books. It happens in books. Uh, it, it's just the perfect fit of artist and material subject matter that creates a dynamic that results in fandom absolutely swooning over that particular work, that particular body of work, storytelling, and, and launching both the character and the creator, but mostly us, mostly us as fans, on a next level journey. The perfect fit is something that may not come around due to your editor's guidance. They may want you to do something else. I have talked in my own career, I can only speak from my own personal experience, how people guided me towards certain projects that they wanted. I have spoken often. Early on in my days at Marvel Comics, I had come over from DC Comics. I had really pursued and, and, and sought after this assignment called Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove had not been published in around 15 years. The Hawk and Dove uh, pairing, it was two brothers. Hank Hall and Don Hall had never been a winning combination. No matter how great the talent that had touched it previously, it had the one of the seminal creators of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, Steve Ditko, who launched it. It was his part of his brainchild. And originally it was born in the... the, the uh, the backdrop of the 1960s and the war and peace kind of discussions and, and debates that were that were heating up campuses all across the country. And and so so Hank Hall was in today's world would be Fox News and Don Hall would have been CNN. It was war and peace, war and peace. It was very much a a uh, juxtaposition of two, you know, conflicting viewpoints. Uh especially during the, the very controversial Vietnam War that was going on in our country in the United States of America and uh, be, being waged from the United States of America over in the jungles of Vietnam. Hank Hall, hothead, warmonger, in, in, in quotes, and, and, and Don Hall, peaceful guy. Well, when they became hawk and dove through some mystical incantation, he was, hawk was the more aggressive, you know, aggressive figure and dove was the more kind of peaceful, like let's find another way. Well, no matter Steve Ditko or Gil Kane, G-I-L-K-A-N-E, Gil Kane, a huge talent that would, uh, would, would redefine Green Lantern that would contribute to incredible runs of, of, uh, of Daredevil. Gil Kane became the cover artist, the cover editor, cover artist editor over at Marvel Comics through the seventies. The guy is, just sick talent, was sick talent. Both these gentlemen are long since gone. But Hawk and Dove, they both gave it a shot. It was canceled and they didn't really revisit it. In, 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 in guest 
shots, Hawk and Dove never really moved the Dino. They, they just didn't really hit. They didn't have the impact of, of, that, that was intended. So in the 80s when it was going around that I heard on the, on the convention circuit that there was a new take, a new version. Hawk was going to be uh, uh, the same as he always was, but Dove, who had died in an event in DC Comics, had a building uh, fall on him and crash and, and kill him, that there was going to be a new Dove. A new Dove was emerging. I investigated this. I looked into this. I wanted to be a part of this. I fought to be a part of this. I was told I would have to wait at the back of the line. They went to, uh, my editor went to uh, seven or, or or so different artists. I would follow up with each one of them. Are you going to take the assignment? Are you going to take the assignment? And and it was great in, in that no one took the assignment and it was just little old Robbie Liefeld sitting there with his drawing pad ready to go and go I did. And I feel like I was the perfect fit for Hawk and Dove. I was the perfect dynamic. It was the perfect outlet of all of my inspirations that I had up until that time. Hawk and Dove was a smash surprise hit. The five issue miniseries that I did with the Kiesels at the time they were married, Barbara and Carl Kiesel, and introducing Dawn Granger, the female Dove, was the exact, the exact tonic that that concept needed. The male and female Hawk and Dove have now been around longer and outlasted the original incarnation by almost a decade. And they were actually, you know, embodied in the Titans series on HBO Max, Minka Kelly as Don Granger, Dove, and Alan Richson as Hank Hall. So this this version of Hawk and Dove has taken flight, has, has taken life, flesh, blood, you know, very cool appearances on the, the Titans live action show on HBO Max. But following that, following that, I got, I got offers from Marvel. You know, come over, Draw, draw the X Men, work in the X office. That's the call that 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 found me crossing the street, which I did happily, joyfully. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that this work rejuvenating this previously dormant dormant topic was going to result in in me getting work in the highest office in the land, getting the X Men stuff. But while I waited for the perfect assignment to come through, on 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 that, you know that promise of, of doing work in the X office. And another editor called me and offered me Dr. Strange. He said, Hey, I want to, I want to make sure that, that, that you're okay doing this version of Dr. Strange. Cause I told him I was intrigued at the time. Todd McFarlane was blowing up doing Spider-Man, a Steve Ditko concept, a Steve Ditko concept that worked best in my opinion, prior to Todd McFarlane when Steve Ditko did him. Steve Ditko did, I believe, 34, 36 issues of Spider-Man. He introduced, you know, Craven the Hunter, Mysterio, Doc Ock, Green Goblin. He, he, I mean, the, enti- the entire Mysterio, did I say Mysterio? The entire rogues gallery uh, of, of Spider-Man's, you know, villainous opposition was imagined, created, and, and, and never depicted more powerfully than its originator, Steve Ditko. Well, Todd McFarlane was bringing it back to those creepy roots with a modern twist, and it was just electrifying audiences. People loved it. The same Ditko energy that went into Spider-Man went into Doctor Strange. He had created Doctor Strange and Clea and Dormammu and Nightmare, and I thought, hey, I, 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 could, get, I could get on it in on some of this action if they let me stick with this weird approach. Well, he said, no, 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 Rob, we're not going to do it like that. We're doing him as kind of a occult investigator. And and I'm like, occult investigator? I, I, I don't want any part of that. He's not even going to wear his traditional costume. He's going to wear like a coat, 
uh, uh, and, and, and investigate, you know, vampires, werewolves, demons. And I'm like, that, that's not the Dr. Strange that I want to do. That's not the Dr. Strange that is going to give me the success that I need to keep paying my bills and growing my fan base. Cause I've seen, I've seen missteps in comics. I've seen, you know, less than perfect fits. And I knew right there. And then that Dr. Strange was not a perfect fit for me under those conditions. Dr. Strange, occult investigator, was not what I wanted to do. But if we were going to do the Aiga Vagamoto and, 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 and Nightmare and Dormammu and Baron Mordo, I was all for it. I wanted to, to basically, in essence, go as deep in on the Ditko-esque representation of Dr. Strange as Todd was doing with Spider-Man. But I was told, no, under no circumstances. Now, they did. They followed through on that occult investigator uh, angle, and, and, it, and it failed. It, predictably, it failed. They had a really good artist. His name is Jackson Geis. He had uh, been tearing it up for a decade. Very accomplished, uh, brilliant artist. But the, he could not elevate this more calm down, this more quote unquote realistic approach to Doctor Strange. It just was not going to cut it. That's not what the fans wanted. And and the editor was very unpleasant with me when I didn't go the way that I did. But thank God I didn't. Um, I, I I I stuck to New Mutants. I, I was almost dissuaded again to do an, a project called The Young Avengers. I've covered it here, but I stuck to New Mutants and that became my perfect fit. We've talked many times about how Frank Miller coming on Daredevil was the perfect fit. The book was six times a year, gone to bi-monthly status, not a monthly book for Marvel. They had downgraded it because the interest in the sales weren't there, and they, but they wanted to keep the book you know, on the stands. They wanted to keep publishing it. And, and Frank Miller comes on and he gets the job drawing it for a few issues, then wins the job as writing and drawing it and he utterly, completely transforms the title. Frank's work on Daredevil is, you know, evergreen. It's constantly reprinted, hardcover, softcover. It's on your comiXology. You can obtain it digitally. It is among the most uh, popular and, and, and infamous critically acclaimed works that Frank Miller has ever done. It is a street-level hero, and at the time, Daredevil was still, prior to Frank, battling a goofy, kind of a goofy rogues gallery. The Jester was kind of a, you know, drugstore version of the Joker. The Jester was not terribly compelling. Uh, You know, Mr. Hyde was not terribly compelling. The Owl was not terribly compelling. Frank came in, he, he, he put his own spin on Daredevil by taking his own passion of grindhouse movies and Hong Kong cinema, and I have given this such in-depth coverage in other Frank Miller Daredevil podcasts, so you want to jump jump out of this afterwards if you, if you want to continue down this path. I'm not going to re, retread all of the, the, the same examinations I've done of Frank and his Daredevil run and his Batman run in previous episodes, but that is available. Frank thrived on street-level characters. He knew exactly what this character needed. He, it, it needed more grime. It needed more violence. It, it needed a darker tone. It needed more smashing of elbows and knees by, by introducing the, the Eastern themes of the Yakuza and, and smashing it up against the New York mob. And he made the Kingpin into an A-list villain when, when Kingpin was nobody's A-list villain at Marvel prior to Frank turning his gaze on him and transforming him and pulling him away from the Spider-Man office to the point where now he is considered a Daredevil villain. In fact, he was born a Spider-Man villain, but never, never rose above 
the level of the Green Goblin or Mysterio or Doc Ock or Vulture. And, 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 and you know, nowadays with, with all the symbiotes, you know, Venom, Shriek, Carnage. But Frank Miller took Kingpin and made him frightening, made him devastating. And, and that entire viewpoint of, of, of Daredevil from Frank Miller, he took Black Widow. He gave her new life. She had been kind of cast off to the side, a, a secondary character. He breathed new life into her, reintroducing her back into Daredevil, which, which she had been bouncing around all through the 70s. Gave her a different look, cut her hair, gave her a up, updated ver, um, kind of representation and introduced a character, a seminal character named Elektra that just turned the entire fortunes of that comic book around. It goes monthly. It becomes number one, all under the penmanship and the artistry of one singular Frank Miller. That is the perfect fit. We are talking the perfect fit. Frank finds his way over at DC Comics to Batman, kind of the yin to Daredevil's yang, except obviously Batman predates Daredevil, is the more famous of the characters, but we've covered Batman was in kind of the same condition that Daredevil was was in. He was faltering. His books had been canceled, limited. He went from six comics to two comics. And then Frank Miller punched us all in the face with Dark Knight and gave us a version of that comic book character that we had never, ever seen. And in fact, transformed his lore forevermore. Maybe the single most influential Batman creator outside of its, his creators uh, to ever touch the character. And everything that Frank did since then has been repeated often. Over and over, you know, you want the Batmobile as a giant tank? Well, no one saw that coming. He really pulled that ace, you know, and and, and played it. And we all just exploded with excitement. Oh my gosh, the Batmobile as a tank. And now, since then, it's, well, I can draw a bigger tank. I can draw even a bigger tank. It's But it's still the Batmobile as a tank. So again, I did a dedicated podcast recently on all the ways that Frank Miller dramatically altered Batman, how, how, how Dark Knight transformed Batman forever. That is a dedicated podcast. You should seek out, you should check it out. It's, uh, it, it goes through, I think, 10 different ways that Frank transformed. But that's, again, a perfect fit. A perfect fit. Now, in between this, and this is the interesting part, did you know that Frank Miller was also offered Doctor Strange? And Frank Miller also was um, a yes on doing Doctor Strange, so much so that there was a full-page ad taken out in 1981 for Frank Miller and Roger Stern, another very talented writer uh, that, that, that was writing Avengers and Spider-Man for Marvel at the time, that Frank Miller was going to team with him and give you Doctor Strange. It, it appeared in all the Marvel comic books. It was a glorious, beautiful, stunning house ad uh, in, in, all, in literally all of the different comic books. It says right here, buy this book, giant, giant yellow logo fonts by this book it says or face the wrath of the dread dormemu it has doctor strange casting spells from head to toe full figure up against the window of his sanctum sanctorum it has wong in the background it has clea hovering uh charlie's throne recently appeared as clea and it has a blurb on it it says watch for the new adventures of earth sorcerer supreme as mystically conjured by Roger Stern and Frank Miller, Doctor Strange, let evil beware. The doctor is in. And it says it's going to be on sale every 30 days. This is in the middle of, of Frank's Daredevil run. So imagine 
cracking open your comic books and in all the comic books that week, that month, is an announcement that the guy that turned around Daredevil and made it a smash is going to team with another um, really popular writer and give us Doctor Strange monthly. It's in every comic. It was announced. You know, it never happened. It Not, not one single panel occurred. It did not happen. And we as fans were just like left to wonder, well, wait, Doctor Strange is still coming out. You know, November turned to December, turned to, you know, January, February, March, April. There was no new creative team. In fact, Roger Stern teamed with a gentleman named Marshall Rogers. I did a dedicated, uh, really deep dissertation of Marshall Rogers and Roger Stern's incredible Doctor Strange run, somewhat unheralded. Uh, it came out came out in the spring of last year of, of 2020, 2022, this year with uh, with the release of Doctor Strange uh, Multiverse of Madness movie. I, I, I figured you guys needed to know about this epic run, but that was supposed to be this Frank Miller run, and who knows what Frank Miller would have contributed to it. He, he was not someone who just kind of stood idly by, but that house ad was not delivered. The promise of that, the excitement of that, it was the thing that we talked about with our friends, like, hey, are you, are you excited for that Doctor Strange by Frank Miller? Now, who knows? Who knows why it didn't happen? There's all sorts of uh, stories that Frank was going to draw the adaptation of the James Bond movie for, yours, for your eyes only, and and that, that was coming out this summer, that 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 particular summer, and that he ultimately didn't nail that gig, and then he was going to pivot over to Doctor Strange, and Roger Stern is on record saying, well, it just didn't come together. We had agreed to do it, and then nothing came of it, and Frank continued to do Daredevil. What I believe happened is Daredevil became the, it became the number one comic book for Marvel Comics. That that is a fact. It rose sales wise in the direct market in comic stores higher than the X Men during about a two and a half year run. I think Frank Miller said, you know, I'm doing really good on this. This is the voice people want. I, I was very, very much tempted by this, but I, I did not end up crossing that bridge. Now, here's the deal. We're going to circle back to Frank Miller on Doctor Strange because that's in the Rob's Recommends, which is now at the end of, of the episode. So, so, so hang on. There's more to come in regards to following that up. The perfect fit, again, is, is, is not just a, a domain of the comic book world. Let's look at Steven Spielberg. Let's look, let, let's look at James Cameron. Let's look at Ridley Scott. Do these three amazing seminal talents excel at science fiction? I, I think the audiences and all of the evidence of the box office would say yes, absolutely, 100%. When Steven Strain, <laughs> sorry, when Steven Spielberg does science fiction, Close Encounters, E.T., Minority Report, War of the Worlds, A.I. I mean, that's just five of his brilliant, amazing, amazing science fiction accomplishments. And that's not even counting Jurassic Park, which is absolutely science fiction. Steven understands the blockbuster and nuance that he personally delivers on each of those very Spielbergian crafted films. He understands what we want from a character. He understands the spectacle we want from science fiction. He understands the pace. He understands how to give us a shock and an awe and a surprise. I was a kid when I saw Close Encounters. You know, I wasn't expecting as nuanced a story as it was, but I went along for the journey. And it was state of the art in, in, the, in the way that it was directed and presented. 
so much so that recently my 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 oldest son who wanted to check it out, I, I warned him, this is a, this is this is slow, this is this is nuanced, okay? This isn't minority report, but he loved it. It builds, it crescendos to that giant mothership ending and 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 at Devil's Peak. And it 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 just holds your your attention and spectacle the entirety. And 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 Richard Dreyfus going mad from this encounter with these aliens and his quest to reunite with them. The 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 the, the pulse pounding pace as he tries to make it to Devil's Peak and get beyond the military and 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 get get up that that mountain and see what's going on with the government. That was Spielberg's first big flex with sci-fi. He would then even streamline it, obviously, and we would all turn on our heart lights for Mr. E.T., which was the blockbuster, the blockbuster of, of the summer of, of 1982. I mean, that thing took everybody by storm. E.T. was just, it, it again, gave a nuanced science fiction tale. It threw an alien right into the middle of suburbia and to a, uh, a a group of kids with 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 their single mom, and we just all went along for that ride. And the tension: Will anybody find out that there's an alien living in 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 this house in suburbia? And of course, when the military shows up, and that authority is asserted, it. I remember as a kid, I'm 13 years old. I was terrified. I was absolutely like terrified of how this was all going down. Later on in his career, obviously Jurassic Park to bring those dinosaurs to life, to bring that wonder, that spectacle to, 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 you know, go on that journey and look through John Hammond's eyes and then look through Laura Dern's eyes, eyes and Jeff Goldblum's and just see the entire uh, shock and awe of, of this new age of dinosaurs. It was incredible. Again, frightening, almost horror film level jump scares throughout the original Jurassic Park and an encounter with both practical effects and CG effects that 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 just blew us all away and and found us going back again and again and again to consume the wonder of Jurassic Park. In the 2000s, he merged spectacularly. My my one of my favorite Steven Spielberg movies of all space and time is Minority Report. It is the perfect blend of 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 an, uh, a giant star turn by by Mr. Tom Cruise, who we're gonna talk about here real quick. Right after we we cover this, we're going to pivot a little to Mr. Tom Cruise and his perfect fits. But Minority Report is just amazing. It 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 almost becomes superhero level action when the police attempt to take down Tom when he turns to run. It has overtures for me of a of a movie I've loved my entire life. As a kid, I saw Logan's Run, and 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 Minority Report has you know it's Tom Cruise's run. But it is a, 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 the world around the corner, and and Stephen talked openly how he met with futurists to to ask how are we going to you know be presented with technology in the in the, in the years to come, and whether it was the moving you know newspaper on the tablets or the eye recognition in the malts, the subtle stuff to go to go along with the jetpacks and the precog technology, uh, just just phenomenal science fiction, phenomenal science fiction. Following it up with Tom Cruise. And War of the Worlds, Steven Spielberg tackling this epic, you know, conquest of aliens over humans in in, in this crucial battle, this crucial showdown where they are just wiping us out. Again, the spectacle is there, but it is human, it is real, it is tense, it is um, just extremely exciting, it is unnerving. When, When Tom Cruise 
drives away with his daughter and she is screaming in the car. It is absolutely an unnerving experience in the theater, at home, wherever you encountered it. Steven Spielberg loves science fiction. He loves the, 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 the sense of wonder, the sense of spectacle that he alone can bring to it. But he's not alone, obviously. James Cameron, outside, really, of, of, of you know, True Lies and, and Titanic, he is such a giant flex in the sci-fi world. I mentioned recently my son wanted to rewatch Avatar. He wanted to reevaluate it because he had heard the internet doesn't think that it's a very good movie anymore. I, I literally like coughed up in laughter. And then you saw that in one movie, James Cameron with Avatar, which was brand new, completely new intellectual property, characters that had never existed, not based on a book, a comic, you know, a short story. James Cameron just laid out this world of Pandora and you can see the influences all over it. You want to compare it to Dances with Wolves? Great, do that. You want to can compare it to Fern Gully? Great, do that. You want to compare it to Pocahontas? Great, do that. The bottom line, it is a great merger of fantasy and technology. Flying dragons and and and, and exoskeleton supersuits, bows and arrows and giant powerful tech tech guns with tech ammo. Basically, there are spaceships and then there are people on, you know, multi-limbed horse-like creatures. And again, dragons and, and, and hair and tentacles that merge to give this, you know, symbiotic relationship. The, the movie looks amazing and it, it, it's literally 13 years later and you still, your, your jaw is on the floor and how amazing James Cameron pulled off all the various visuals. I could not be more excited for the sequel to Avatar, but The Abyss is in the same camp. It, it, you know, pioneered the technology that would give us the T2 and, 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 you know, Ed Harris dropping to the bottom of the ocean, encountering these alien creatures, the mystery that's surrounding that entire movie, obviously Terminator, Terminator 2, the, 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 this guy flexes on sci-fi like few ever. He understands it's br- his sci-fi is brawny. It's muscular. Even when Linda Hamilton transforms, she becomes this frighteningly badass female tour de force. She's a powerhouse as she goes up against this indestructible cyborg for a second time and now this newfangled version of it. The, 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 the careful blue lighting that I've talked in so many different podcasts that so many in my field, we were always trying to bite on that James Cameron lighting because he knows exactly how to light something to make it look ominous, to make it look terrifying, to make it look, you know, as impressive as hell. The guy understands how to hit a light source, how to light a scene. Aliens, aliens, how do you follow Ridley Scott's terrifying, you know, in space, no one will hear you scream. Uh, uh, alien film that that just rocked a generation. And then seven years later, he's like, well, I'll make it a giant action film. And all the space Marines, all of that gear, Vasquez, all of that amazing exoskeleton tech, you know, he was tickling us with what would be coming in Avatar all the way back in Aliens. He, again, he understands the scope, the feel he needed to go bigger, the, the you know, the, the the giant mother alien. I mean, all of those different eggs, that terrifying landscape when they realize they're wandering into where all the eggs are laid. That the Again, James Cameron just digs the technology, the scope, the spectacle. He understands the 
the pacing again, maybe a little brawnier, maybe a little more muscular than any of the other sci-fi, certainly more so than the sci-fi that Ridley Scott excels at and, 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 and is, is slightly more creepy and more disturbing. Blade Runner is one of the greatest science fiction films of all space and time, no matter how many people saw it. And, and coupled with Alien, and I'm going to tell you, I will go to the mat on Prometheus. I, I dug it so much. I, I absolutely just uh, could not get enough of it. Loved, loved, loved Ridley Scott revisiting that world. Again, Ridley Scott understands aliens, creatures, tech, uh, giving new, newfangled designs in, in regards to, uh, to weaponry, technology, and, and, and again, literally creating these kind of terrifying gods uh, in, 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 in his movies. The guy just understands he just understands sci-fi horror, maybe with the best of them. And again, Prometheus, those big, terrifying blue deities, uh, revisiting the aliens, all of the different technology that they brought to the world in order to explore the you know, unexplainable phenomena. Ridley Scott, James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, sci-fi is the perfect fit for them. Now, now both Cameron... And Spielberg have proven, look, we can go way beyond this box. We can give you, we can give you, you know, a Schindler's List. We can give you a Titanic, something that is, you know, bereft of all sci-fi, you know, wonder details. It is, they are, they are more, you know, tragic stories, more human element uh, uh, depictions, dramas. They're, they're flat out dramas. And they're great. And audiences responded. But where they live and where James Cameron is literally going to finish his career, if you if you figure that he was working on Avatar since the early 2000s, and if he literally spends the next, you know, five years refining what's left of his Avatar, you know, sequels with, with Avatar 3 and 4, you're looking at a span of almost 30 years that this man gave to this sci-fi endeavor. James Cameron lives in this sci-fi fantasy space, possibly does it better than anyone ever possibly, you know, could have imagined. And, and it's his giant flex. It's his perfect fit. He gets it. He knows what we expect. He knows that he has to exceed it. And each and every time he does. Look, when he wanted to make a James Bond film, he showed you he would make one of the best James Bond films of all time with true lies. The guy really, truly has no limitations. But just as Frank Miller excels at street level depictions of heroes, James Cameron excels in the sci-fi realm. Now, in regards to perfect fits, again, there's Tom Cruise who, let's be honest, for the last two decades has decided that his perfect fit is relentless action pictures that are built around giant, amazing stunt depictions. I mean, he wants to go into space next to 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 be the first guy that is going to be depicted in an action sequence in outer space. And that is following up him fighting on trains, dangling from helicopters, dangling from the tops of cliffs, repelling. The guy has done each and every uh, action stunt um, you know, possible. He is driving a motorcycle off a cliff in the latest trailers for the newest Mission Impossible. He is literally flying military planes in Top Gun. He got that clearance. He's that good. He became a pilot himself in real life. 
When he did Born on the Fourth of July, it riveted me. This is the guy who had rocketed to fame on the back of Risky Business and Top Gun and Cocktail, which really set him apart. People said, is he really a star? Was Top Gun all the military stuff? Boom, Cocktail comes out. It's about a guy mixing drinks, you know, loaded with charm and charisma. And it blows up, blows up at the box office. Tom could do anything he wanted whenever he wanted. He chose to do Born on the 4th of July. And I thought he, he deserved the Academy Award. The, 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 the portrayal that Tom Cruise gives forth in that movie, the, the, the transformation, the running the entire spectrum, running the entire spectrum of kind of naive, uh, you know, <clears throat> naive recruit into the army, you know, all the way into this bitter former veteran, his portrayal of Ron Kovic is, is, is breathtaking. It's frightening. I cried uh, when he wants to die and kill himself and his, and his parents don't know what to do with him. And it's in the middle of the night and he's going down the hallway in his wheelchair, screaming, knocking on walls, doors. And his mom is cursing him out. And it, it, is, it is uncomfortable. It is tense. It is, you know, so, so sub subversive. You, you think you're not watching Tom Cruise anymore. You're watching Ron Kovic in, in full agony. Now, he lost that year to um, Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think Tom Cruise was like, well, I really don't have anything more to prove here. I've, I've, uh, I've shown the range that I am capable of as a very, very young actor. And he would go on and hold our attention. And especially in the late 90s, he dove into roles like Jerry Maguire, like Eyes Wide Shut, uh, that, 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 and Magnolia. If you have never seen Tom Cruise's depiction in Magnolia, it is another, whoa, breathtaking against type. One of my favorite, if not my top Tom Cruise role of all time in just how he plays almost a sinister, very convincingly sinister person, but Magnolia, born on the 4th of July, he more than made his case that, that there is nothing, there's no role that I cannot absolutely, uh, you know, portray and, and, and sub, you know, submerge into and, 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 and just completely blow you away and exceed all your expectations. Tom Cruise is a fantastic actor. And there are some who, who honestly bemoan the fact that he's not going around doing small roles anymore, bit parts. I've seen every Tom Cruise movie. I've seen every single performance. There is no doubt that in the last 20 years, he again has found what he believes a perfect fit in action, relentless action movies, specifically with Christopher McQuarrie on the Mission Impossible franchise. Christopher McQuarrie pivoted over, was a crucial contributor to the Top Gun Maverick sequel. His name's all over it. He helped produce it, rewrite it, you know, really kept that, kept that entire nucleus of that film together. And look what happened. Giant, massive, Biggest blockbuster of Tom Cruise's career, soon to be followed by the next Mission Impossible installment. And the previous two were the best in the entire canon of Tom Cruise Mission Impossible films. He and Macquarie have this incredible chemistry together, and they, and they have committed to, to making so much cinema. Again, they 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 met on Jack Reacher, where you know Tom was criticized for not embodying the character 
the way that Alan Richson embodies Jack Reacher is exactly how he is supposed to look per the novels, per the author, the author. That is, that is a true reflection of the material, but Macquarie and Tom took on that first Jack Reacher is a fantastic film. Again, relentless action, a different level of action, more street level, more smarts, not as much tech and wizardry and and uh, and spectacle as Mission Impossible, but is a great street level action film. Tom Cruise has devoted himself. There are even there there are, um, even parts of Night and Day that I think are fantastic. Tom Cruise has really given himself over to these stunt driven action spectacles. And who are we to argue that 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 isn't his perfect fit? Because we keep showing up for them again and again and again and again. In regards to comic books and perfect fits. I loved when Todd McFarlane came on Hulk. I thought, wow, this is a really cool version of the Hulk. I dig it. I'm I'm totally loving Todd McFarlane's rendition of the Hulk. He was big, he was bulky, he was powerful. But Todd didn't want to do the Hulk. He's told me he was just biding his time, waiting for his opening to get into the Spider-Man office. And I think we're all grateful that that happened because Todd on Spider-Man is a perfect fit. It played into all of his strengths. Todd told me privately in all of our different conversations uh, in, 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 in the... 90s, mid-90s, in the late 80s when we struck up our friendship, he didn't want to do a team book. That's not, you know, he, that, 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 that wasn't where he felt his area of expertise lie. Now you read interviews with John Byrne and George Perez, the two biggest names of like the 70s, 80s, they thrived on team books. That, that's what was modeled for me. Um, peers like, like Jim Lee, we wanted to do team books because that's what they did. And, and, and I liked team books because of the variety of characters and shapes and sizes and personalities that you can depict sometimes all together on one panel, definitely all together on one page. Todd said, I wanted a single character that I could hone, you know, my focus. And I wanted to do this creepy rogues gallery. And really Todd lends himself to more, I would say, creatures and monsters. His Spider-Man became creepier than anything I'd ever seen. He would draw a Peter Parker face that would have a brow and a nose and a jaw and lips and a chin. But when he put that Spider-Man mask over, it was like it was like gel uh, uh, liquid in, inside that mask because it would conform to shapes that didn't necessarily match up to the structure of a human skull and, and, and head in the way that it should have given that Peter Parker is underneath. But it looked cool and, and we're fortunate for it. Sometimes it would, like I said, that, that, that mask going over Peter's face would give a different contour than the face without the mask, but it was cool. It was creepy. I loved it. The, the way that he depicted that his Spider-Man's limbs and the way that he would stretch the figure out and the way that he would make these crazy poses because he thought Spider-Man should be weird. It should be not every John Romita senior drawing that we've seen prior. Not every Sal Buscema depiction of Spider-Man in Marvel team-up, which he had done for years and years. Todd took a distinct, uh, different approach to Spider-Man and it paid off in spades. And also, especially in those early Amazing Spider-Man issues, he's battling Green Goblin, he's battling Hobgoblin, he's battling the Lizard, he's battling Sandman, Hydro-Man, he's battling Mysterio, Doc Ock. Todd went full into the creature feature Steve Ditko rogues gallery. And again, we were all better for it. It was and remains fantastic work. I revisit it. I love it. Todd understood. He, he depicted the Red Skull. He depicted uh, Silver Sable. He, he, he depicted a killer, really fun 
depiction of Captain America for one single issue. But Todd wanted a solo character, not a team book. Again, I told you how he would, he would um, you know, give me a hard time and be like, Bud, you're doing the team book and, and, and measuring the eyes and the nose and the hair and the stubble and, and the mouth and the teeth, all those mouths, all that teeth. I'm just doing the big Spidey. I'm just doing the big Spidey. Meantime, you, you got all those kids and the new mutants. Well, he knew what he was doing. He honed in on Spider-Man and the audience locked in and loved it. And it was in fact, what? A perfect fit, an absolute perfect fit. So much so that he was rewarded with his own showcase where he wrote and drew it. And then he gave us Craven, and then he gave us the Wendigo. And he went out with an X-Force crossover with his buddy Rob and a killer depiction of the Juggernaut. And from there he pivots a year and a half later, gives you Spawn. Again, single focus character, heavily, heavily, you know, just focused on the representation of creatures. The Clown, Violator, Malabuja. If you've ever heard Todd, Malabuja. Okay, uh, uh, all of the different various depictions of, of Spawn as a knight, uh, Spawn throughout history, medieval, whatever. Todd went full on into that same creature mode that powered him on Spider-Man. He knew what his strengths were. He knew what his perfect fits were and what they felt like and how he could best manifest those for us to the maximum audience, you know, satisfaction. And he did, again, repeatedly, repeatedly. Todd hasn't really drawn uh, a comic for the last two decades. When he does draw comic books, it is distinctly different than when he inks other people's drawings. Because Todd has a unique design sense, page design, it is, it is fantastic. He was being influenced by the same anime and manga that the entire peer group was at the time. We would kind of always, have you seen that Akira? Have you, have you seen that, um, you know, Pat Labor, that Gundam? We were all passing around all that, all that same stuff in the late 80s, early 90s. But the manga and anime speed lines uh, were, were one of the first, uh, were, were, he incorporated earliest, first, foremost in the pages of Spider-Man in the service of kind of, it would appear speeding up the action between his various creature factions. And of course, I'm leaving out Venom, the absolute depiction as put forth by Todd that has defined a new generation of Spider-Man villain. I mean, Venom was so popular that it's like they they, they, they just continue to take pieces of him and spin him, him off, whether it's, again, the, a four-munching car, carnage or Shriek, uh, all the other symbiotes that I don't have on the tip of my tongue right now, but with those giant razor sheep, that big giant creepy white eye against the entire muscular black costume depiction. Todd nailed Venom and, 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 and an audience followed him forever, it seems. So, so a perfect fit, Spider-Man, not the Hulk, not Infinity Inc., not the other stuff that Todd had danced with, but he found Spider-Man, he locked in. That was his absolute perfect fit. Jim Lee on the X-Men. You could tell this is a guy that wanted to draw Wolverine his entire Life. Our entire, you know, age group grew up loving Wolverine, raised on John Burns' Wolverine, Paul Smith's Wolverine, Barry Smith's Wolverine, Mark Silvestri's Wolverine. Jim Lee, when he got that chance, he jumped and put Wolverine back at the fore. His uncanny X-Men, which to me is the pinnacle of his entire career, because you could see the love and the passion 
and 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 the respect for everything that had come before all put together in this relentless package with energy and detail and and killer figure work and snarl and strut i mean that wolverine had power if 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 you were doing the x-men in the 80s and 90s and you couldn't pull off wolverine the audience wasn't there for you the audience was there for you if in fact you could do a top flight Wolverine. And so Jim on X-Men was perfect. And again, you got to see him draw a beautiful and sexy and appealing storm or Jean Grey along with the, you know, very macho and brawny Cyclops and, and, and Wolverine and Archangel. It was, it was the perfect place. A team book perfectly, uh, exhibited all of Jim's different strengths in the same way that Todd was honed in very specifically on Spider-Man, Jim was honed in on depicting all of the various cast members of the of the X-Men and giving them each different levels of appeal. I mean, an entire issue of Rogue in the Savage Land is just eye-poppingly gorgeous and beautiful and Jim really wanted to put his own stamp, his own imprimatur on Rogue and he did. And it was fantastic. I remember grabbing that book off the stands. I was drawing comics you know, I was watching all of my peers so carefully. And that's an issue that in fact was not inked by Scott Williams, but was inked by Art to Bear, which was like, wow, I didn't see this coming. And it still looked fantastic, looked amazing. Jim on X-Men was the perfect fit, the absolute perfect fit. Another artist who I don't believe was a perfect fit for the X-Men was John Romita Jr., the son of John Romita Sr. He was another guy who had done Spider-Man and I really liked his Spider-Man. I, I met, you know, all manner of different cool characters while he was doing uh, Spider-Man. He had a two-issue two, two arc on Spider-Man versus the Juggernaut. He had uh, Hydro-Man. He introduced a, b- a bunch of cool different characters. He depicted Vulture. I loved John Romita Jr.'s Spider-Man, but he followed one of the greatest runs on X-Men ever, Paul Smith. And to this day, fans my age were like, it was a letdown. It wasn't what we wanted. This wasn't the guy who, who, who we felt was excelling in the footsteps of John Byrne and Dave Cockerman, and Paul Smith, and then the annuals by Art Adams and Barry Windsor Smith and all the other different X-Men events that were going, going on around it. He found his way to Daredevil later in, in the 80s, and a perfect fit was born, just like Frank Miller before him. And in fact, he would go on to do Daredevil with Frank Miller, and it was a perfect fit. The X-Men... It was professional. It was well done. It just was not a perfect fit. It was not the the criteria that X-Men fans had for that book at that time. It, it, it just didn't uh, didn't have the same come togetherness that the the, the, the the fit like a glove that it did for Dave Cockrum and for Paul Smith and especially John Byrne, who gave us the epic run. Those pages from John Byrne's uncanny X-Men run are selling individual interior pages for six figures. If you do not think an entire era, an entire group, a generation of, of, of young men and women who, were, who, were, who grew up on that X-Men saga by John Byrne and Terry Austin, if you do not think that they are um, in fact, you know, worshiping that run, check out when those pages go to auction. Check out the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, $100,000 pages that, 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 that find their way to those exalted numbers by people just trying to outbid each other because they want it because it's a piece of history because it's a piece of lore but when john Romita jr jumps on and does daredevil it's a perfect fit street level heroes is where he lives and breathes the for, the aforementioned spider-man and then daredevil with Anne nascenti then later frank miller it was like this is where 
exactly where John Romita Jr. belongs. He was tapped to do the Avengers at one point, and it's a run that you probably don't remember because it was not a perfect fit. He went over to DC and someone thought it would be a good idea for him to do Superman instead of Batman. And it's a forgettable run because it was maybe the most mis, misfit combination. It just did not fit John Romita Jr. doing kind of cosmic level scale stuff just was not uh, the perfect fit. Not in the same way that him doing a Batman or a Daredevil or street level Spider-Man characters are. That is where he absolutely shines. That is where he is uh, just exalted. He just gets it. It's better. He understands that same low, you know, entrenched elbows, knees, the, the grit, uh, great action choreography, all of that stuff uh, is, is, is where he embodies his style and his, and his techniques and his storytelling the very best. Jack Kirby did not do a run on Spider-Man. Jack Kirby did not do a run on Batman because they were, in fact, not perfect fits. He he drew Spider-Man a couple times, and if you go on the internet and you wander into anybody, now he penciled the cover to Amazing Fantasy, Spider-Man's first appearance, but Steve Ditko inked over it, so it's this perfect blend. You got Steve Ditko's creepy, soft, beautiful rendering line, so he he kind of smoothed out the the, the 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 Kirby boldness. But most of what made Kirby Kirby was his boldness, his big, bulky, you know, uh, uh, figures, formats, storytelling. And it didn't necessarily lend itself to Spider-Man, which, which benefited from a more leaf figure work, a, a, uh, a, a more nuanced approach, a creepier approach. And so when you see Jack Kirby's Spider-Man, it's kind of, they, they look groovy. They, they look like really cool you know, day glow, 70s era drawings, but people go, ah, he didn't do it. He didn't do a great Spider-Man. He didn't do a great Spider-Man or Batman, Batman and Robin, which he depicts in superpowers. You're like, ah, that's not really a good fit. Well, he didn't go there. I think Jack had a really good knowledge of what benefited him and what did not. And he exhibited that all through the Fantastic Four and all through Thor, two of his biggest, most acclaimed, most successful, most impactful runs. Over at Marvel, when he went to DC, he created his own world, the fourth world. Maybe the world wasn't ready for it. The new gods, Darkseid, you know, Orion, Light Ray, Mr. Miracle, amazing. To this day, my mouth just could not drop faster and farther to the floor in awe of every different page, composition, drawing, line. It's, it's magnificent. He created this incredible world. He then went on to do the same thing with Commandy. He did the same thing with Omak, with the Demon, with Devil Dinosaur. He came back to Marvel, obviously, uh, Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. And uh, Captain America is a perfect, perfect fit. Jack created him. How, how could it not be a perfect fit? He and Joe, Joe Simon introduced Captain America during wartime, World War II. And when he came back, and depicted him in the Avengers and then in the 1970s for the Bicentennial, which was a really big deal in the United States of America at the time. If you were a kid, the Bicentennial of America, 1976. You had all these 1776, 1976, huge Bicentennial celebration. They got Jack Kirby, the the the, the creator of Captain America, come back and do a year on Captain America. It was big, it was bold, it was ballsy, it was brawny, it was macho, but not the same skill set that would make Spider-Man successful. Jack knew intrinsically. Stay away from that stuff. He had a good 
he had a good meter as to where to, you know, put his his strengths and his talents. And it just didn't lie with Spider-Man and with Batman. We could go on and on and on. I could keep doing The Perfect Fit. There's probably a sequel to come. I'm going to end this, though, by telling you that there's a gentleman that's about to give you a comic book that is indeed a perfect fit, possibly 40 years in the making. And uh, that is Mark Silvestri's new Batman Joker book. Mark Silvestri is uh, sitting alongside of me in Portland, Oregon in 2017. We we are in Portland for an Image 25th anniversary event. Uh, Image Comics, the, the publisher in and of itself, is taking everyone out to dinner at this really nice bougie restaurant. It was beautiful, really uh, I mean, just an, an amazing experience where they kind of honored the original founding uh, members, the founding partners. And then that kind of carried over to a couple other different celebrations. There was, it was kind of a weekend of, you know, let's go up to where Image is now centrally located and let's celebrate the 25th anniversary. And we did. And I was positioned next to Mark several times. Uh, most memorably was a breakfast following that dinner on a Saturday morning. And Mark said, do you want to see what I've been looking, working on? And I had, I had known, I had heard since about 2014 that he'd been working on this Batman project, that it had been given the green light and this is what he was pursuing. But I hadn't seen anything. And he gave me his iPhone and he started swiping back past different Batman pages. And my mouth, once again, because you hear this all the time, was just on the floor. Oh my gosh. I have never seen Batman depicted this beautifully, this rich this dynamic, really it's the dynamics of Mark's Batman. He told me the story. It was a new twist, a brand new kind of uh, approach to the Batman and Joker dynamic. Harley Quinn is also along for the ride. I don't want to you know, ruin a, lot, a, a bunch of the details inherent in the book. But right there in 2017, I saw three issues worth of the most amazing depictions of Batman, of Gotham, you know, of Commissioner Gordon. Mark's strength for me, he's so multifaceted, but his figures and his faces are second to none. I have talked often, just so you you know, I believe Mark to be the single most talented illustrator, comic book, you know, artist of our age, of my generation, uh, since, you know, breaking into the business. I think Mark draws rings around everyone casually, casually. He puts everyone else just, it's it's almost to shame how how amazing he is with not only his page layout layouts and his design work and his figure work his faces this he brings a rendering style that he is clearly um taking from bernie wrightson which is no 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 simple feat in and of itself on any level bernie wrightson really pioneered this um form of cross hatching kind of kind of this um crossover multi level depth of crosshatching on Frankenstein, this this series of plates he did in celebration of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You can Google it, you can see it. It is the most refined, uh, almost painstaking line work you've ever seen in, 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 in modern illustration. Mark put his own already impossibly dynamic pencils, faces, figure work, storytelling, and he decided, as he has experimented often throughout his career, he took this approach to rendering that is is steeped in Bernie Wrightson and it works throughout in a way that no one else is going to be able to pull it off. He 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 applies it on faces, 
with different core shadows, with different lighting. He applies it on even the most basic renderings of the shadow that is cast under Batman's armpit from his bicep. You know, it's on his capes. It's on his, it's on his leather. It's, it's, on, it's on the renderings on Joker. It's on the buildings. He really goes into this very in-depth. It's, 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 it's a wonder to behold. My, my wife sat down on the couch next to me. They, they gave me a uh, copy at New York Comic Con. He gave everyone a uh, black and white copy of this Batman. Uh, it's called an ash can. It's a preview edition that they gave out to members of the panel. And people are tripping over themselves trying to get this. And I was very honored. Thank you, Matt Hawkins, for um, literally walking over and give me, giving me a copy, knowing how much I adore and, and, and am, am just in awe and floored by this work. So Mark's never done a dedicated Batman story. He's done Batman Darkness. He's done some covers. But I think when you see this, you're going to go, where's this guy been with this character his entire life? You know, Mark came to fame on X-Men. He then blew up on Wolverine. He... You know, went over to Image Comics, established Top Cow, did Cyber Force, did Witchblade, did Darkness, which I have told you previously was my my favorite work that Mark has ever done is The Darkness. I think you should seek it out. It is nothing short of absolutely staggeringly brilliant. But this is a new peak, a new level. This is a guy, a master of his craft. I have never seen Batman drawn so commercially appealing and yet so just casually, effortlessly, you know, depicted in killer action sequences. The gestures, which Mark has always been a strength of Mark, are so, I, I keep using the word dynamic, but they're, they're fluid. And, and the battle with, with these creatures and the depiction and the, and the staging and the blocking of how he depicts not only Commissioner Gordon, but Batman and Joker, it's, it's going to literally blow you away. The, the, the mood of, of Gotham, the cities, the renderings, the walls, the dirt, the, the trash, the garbage. It is a dirty city. Uh, Batman is in a dark, you know, de 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 depicted as he should be in an incredibly dark, you know, mood and atmosphere. And yet when the action springs in, it's as good as any Marvel Comics action by by the masters like Kirby and Jack Kirby and John Buscema than than. Than there's ever been any action depicted. The mood, the quiet scenes are eerie, uh, but they're one thing that they all are is each and every frame is beautiful. They're gorgeous, and 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 this is indeed a perfect fit. Mark's clearly been working up to this for years, and he sticks the landing like few I have ever seen. Batman Joker is coming out the beginning of November. This is as perfect a fit as any as I have mentioned. Previously, Spielberg, Jurassic Park, Close Encounters, Cameron, Avatar, Batman, and Joker by Mark Silvestri. Enough of me talking about it. You got to see this. It is um, just in black and white. I, I just have it in black and white. So I am giving you this review from a black and white preview comic that shows the depth of Mark's artistry. He wrote it. He drew it. He designed it. He laid it out. It is spectacular. Do not miss it. This is the... This is the brand new perfect fit of our age and boy it feels like we've been waiting for this for a long time i have you guys know listening i am not a default batman guy i, I don't naturally lean toward the character but when there's a great depiction of him i am there just like with frank miller's dark knight this is going to be reviewed as a this is going to be viewed as a seminal work i can see the hardcover the slipcase edition it's all coming it's all deserved it's going to blow you away again coming out uh, in November, just in time for the holidays, just in time to knock us off 
uh, our socks. I, I, I literally have said to Mark and I have said to Matt Hawkins, who runs Top Cow with Mark, uh, Mark Silvestri is the only guy that simultaneously wants to make me draw harder and better and also wants me to give up. Uh, seeing his work, I am moved to retire and never try again and simultaneously to work harder and try and achieve some level that Mark is achieving. This is master craft. This is master craft work. Mark is a master of his craft. This is art at a master level. Do not miss out. Batman Joker, it's coming to you. You will be regretful if you do not take part in this absolute perfect fit. Wrapping up all of this perfect fit with one final perspective. Take, take, for instance, The Ultimates, which launched with Mark Miller and Brian Hitch and went on to really define the ultimate line of comic books at a crucial point when Marvel was looking for a rebrand in regards to their their emergence from bankruptcy, trying to get this Ultimates uh, line you know, to stand out among all the other comic books and all the other Marvel comic books they are publishing. And Ultimates, which was this fresh take on the Avengers through Mark Miller and Brian Hitch and really went on to define both men. It it went on to really take both men to the next level. Imagine had that been Mark Millar and John Romita Jr. We, we are not talking about that book in the same regard on any level possible, it 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 would have been completely, uh, it would have been received differently, and and not the critically acclaimed, buzzworthy, you know, it book of the moment. Uh, certainly not providing the 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 big push, the big gumption that that it allowed Marvel Comics. It it, it took those two gentlemen; they were a perfect fit. Miller and Hitch provided this perfect fit the 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 giant uber scale spectacle that both men brought to their work would not have been maximized in the hands of a guy who really thrives on street level heroes street level conflict street level scale so that 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 really puts it all in perspective it's not that talented guys can't pull off certain scenarios it's just that it's not their perfect fit. And when the perfect fit happens, like John Romita Jr. with Frank Miller on Daredevil, Man Without Fear, then you have just lightning in a bottle and you get the results that, that you want and the and the audience is rocked and, and engaged and enthusiastically receptive of the material. So there you go. Perfect fit. We've summed it up. We've given you examples of what worked, what doesn't work. Certain people who know exactly how to, to get the most out of their talents and what genres benefit them the most. You guys, thank you again, as always, for listening to Rob's Observations. You can catch me on social media in between all these shows. I'm hanging out on Twitter. I'm hanging out on Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. So R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, Rob Liefeld on Instagram, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, on Twitter, I am also on Whatnot. Whatnot is a collectible app that you should absolutely be checking out. It has apparel, uh, shoes, sports shoes, kicks, trading card games, role-playing games, just regular sports cards, comic book cards, and 
signed Funko Pops, signed toys. I am on there as Rob Liefeld. And I would love to have you check me out on Whatnot. We do shows on Wednesdays and Saturdays pretty much uh, with great regularity at this point. And I fit into the comic books, uh, Funko Pops, and toy category. And I love to share all the different signed comics, the remarked Funko Pops. I draw on your Funko Pops. I am on Whatnot at Rob Liefeld. Get the collectible app. It'll open yourself up to this incredible world. It is I've been told many times it is this generation's eBay. Live auctions, buy it nows, all of it. It really is serving the community. Retailers, uh, creators all over are using it. Check me out there. I'm Rob Liefeld. I will look for you on whatnot. It's a live stream, so I'm talking like I am on this podcast. A lot of people say it's an extension of this podcast. I'm a little less filtered, trying to find that balance. balance. But anyway, look for me, and I will uh, uh, hopefully uh, get to check you out. Rob's recommendations. We are deep in this show, but I'm giving you Rob's recommendations. It speaks directly to the Frank Miller, Dr. Strange lost opportunity. Would have that would that have been a perfect fit? We'll never know. That that ad that I mentioned at the top of the show, the ad announcing Frank Miller doing Dr. Strange, and it's gonna come out monthly. Well, I, I I've I've been as forthcoming as I possibly can with you. Kids of my generation were terribly disappointed. It didn't happen. That ad was followed up with nothing, zilch, zero. But we did get to see Frank Miller, the legendary Hall of Fame, uh, critically acclaimed creator. We did get to see him take on Frank Miller alongside Spider-Man. I'm sorry, Frank Miller got to take on Doctor Strange. you're, You're here for the goofs. Stay with me for the goofs. Frank Miller depicted Dr. Strange alongside Spider-Man battling Dr. Doom, no less than Dr. Doom. This is my recommendation for you. Find this out. It's been collected. There's a Frank Miller Spider-Man collection. It's a part of that. It's in uh, d- different trade paperbacks. It is in the best of Frank Miller. Uh, there, there, there's a omnibus. So you can get this outside of its uh, you know, back issue single, but you should grab that. That's probably your best option. It's Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 14. It came out the summer of 1980. Frank Miller uh, illustrated it. I believe co-plotted it. Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Doctor Doom. A kick-ass throwdown. Tom Palmer applied the finishes on this. And it is well worth your, uh, your tracking down. It is a fantastic single standalone adventure. Double-sized. All of the amazing Frank Miller genius that only he can provide. He draws a heck of a Spider-Man in another world. He took over Spider-Man and even before Todd McFarlane got there would have transformed Spider-Man, okay? In the same way that he transformed Daredevil. But you get that sneak peek. You get to see what his Doctor Strange, the way that he depicts the Steve Ditko uh, illustrations of magic, the way that Steve really stylistically defined how Doctor Strange wielded his magic. Frank takes on those cool configurations, shapes, forms, the bands. Um, It's a great, it's a great standalone comic, Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 14. Get it as fast as you can. See what Frank Miller would have done with Doctor Strange had he actually followed up on that house ad that was in all the Marvel comics saying that he was coming on on board and going to transform the master of the mystic arts for Marvel. Amazing Spider-Man Annual 14, a hearty, and honestly, I'm going to call it like bulletproof. It's, it's, it's airtight. This, this Rob's recommendation is going to go the distance. You should check it out. Everyone, 
We are on Facebook. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group, is, is a group that I would like for you to seek out on Facebook. Click yourself uh, in for membership. Myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala will put you through. We are the administrators. That is how you will know you are at the right place, at the right program. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group on Facebook. We are looking forward to seeing you there. Please come on by, join us. We discuss not only my career and the and my and, my, and the, the the myriad of creations that I have, um, you know, contributed to the comic book industry, but anything that I've worked on: GI Joe, Snake Eyes, Avengers, Fantastic Four, all the different titles, Deathstroke, all the different um, work that I've done, and the doors that that opened. Hawkman. Just, just uh, come on by, swing on through. We would love to have you join our uh, discourse, new posts every day. Join in the discussion, share something that you dig. We will be looking for you on Facebook, Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. I am the an administrator. So is a gentleman named Terry Sala. We will be the ones that click you through and look forward to seeing you. At the end of every episode, I am always going to be here to tell you to take a break, catch, catch a breath. Enjoy some great pop culture. Watch Rings of Power, House of Dragon, The Boys, uh, Yellowstone, whatever floats your boat. Get some get some cool pop culture uh, uh, to, to, to relax. Read a comic book. Read a graphic novel. Get one of those amazing omnibuses out. Get get one of the uh, absolute editions, the, the huge overprinted editions that DC does of some of their most acclaimed work. Just bottom line, exhale. Take in something that inspires you. Read a good book. Uh, my wife is a voracious reader. She is constantly, you know, reading a new novel, a new autobiography. It, it, it just, it, she gets so excited by the new information and the stories and the, and the, the places all these books take her to. The same with comics. The same with all the streaming inf- in, in, information, entertainment that we have at our fingertips. Check it out. You know that I recommend a big old bowl of gelato, an ice cream sundae, a chocolate shake, maybe some onion rings, french fries, tacos, burritos, hamburgers, pizza. Come on, man. Every day can't be a cheat day, but make the ones that are count. And that is from me to you. Relax, chill, kick back. Get that you know stimulation that you need to take you off the daily grind and, uh, and get rejuvenated. Your spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical well-being are a real thing. They need to be addressed. Part of that is relaxing and uh, and, 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 and getting that, that stimulus. So guys, I am pulling for you. I know you're pulling for me. I appreciate it so much. Please come back around. Please swing, swing, swing through the cul-de-sac because I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be waiting. And we are most certainly, most definitely, absolutely going to speak again real soon.